Welcome back to another episode of The Silent Battle. I hope everyone is having a great week so far. I'm really excited for this segment today. Again, I am your host, Erica Honeycutt, and today I will be interviewing Mark Plummer. Mark is from Cincinnati, Ohio, and he has idiopathic, unclassified, interstitial lung disease. He was diagnosed with this disease in July 2020. Today, he is going to share his raw and candid story about his journey with idiopathic, unclassified, interstitial lung disease and how he manages his symptoms. Also, he will give us some tips, if he has any, on what may help you all out there to live life more easily if you're battling the same or similar disease. Let's get started. Welcome, Mark. Thank you for being part of the Silent Battle podcast today. Erica, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. I hope I can help some folks out today. I'm sure you will. So, Mark, can you again tell our listeners the name of your disease and share your story with us regarding when this rare disease showed up in your life? Well, it's idiopathic unclassified interstitial lung disease. And the idiopathic unclassified basically means they're not sure what caused my condition. Um, uh, They thought it was autoimmune and I tested negative for all that. Um, All of the doctors in the emergency room the first time I went were sure it was COVID and I've been tested for COVID more than a dozen times and it always comes back negative. So pretty much no one can tell me what caused this. Uh, Hmm. I've never been a coal miner. I've never worked in any industry. Uh, I don't keep birds. Um, So pretty much uh, I'm an outlier and that makes my case even even rare wow so are your uh, are your lungs scarred is that what's yes that's what the i had a chest x-ray and the, whoever read the chest x-ray but uh let's go back to the to the beginning uh-huh. when i first started it was uh, i've only been diagnosed for less than a year my particular right. case is aggressive um and i know a lot of people the timeline is much longer um, but I was working. I was delivering bread. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was a, a relatively physical job, on and off the truck, uh, bending, stooping, reaching, loading trays of bread, mm-hmm. uh, walking in stores, merchandising. So, uh, but what first I started noticing that I was short of breath doing activities at that job where I didn't think the activity should have made me as short as breath yeah. as it was. So, and this is one of the first pieces of advice that I have, mm-hmm. is don't work your body because I'm, I'm 55, I was 54, and I just assumed, you know, I'm not 25 anymore. And at first I just attributed it to being a little bit older and I kind of ignored the the symptoms at first uh, it wasn't enough that it was debilitating um, and it wasn't until that was in February of last year it wasn't until the end of March beginning of April that I started to develop a cough mm-hmm. and it was a cough that wouldn't go away and that's what sent me to my primary care provider um, so I went to him 
he thought I had a lower respiratory infection and wanted to give me antibiotics. But I said to him that um, I don't think that's what this is. I think it's something more than that. And so we talked and he said, uh, well, let's get a chest X-ray. So I got a chest X-ray and whatever doctor read that chest X-ray, he was the one who uh, said interstitial lung disease. And there was significant scarring in both my lungs, more on the left than the right. But uh, so then that sent me to a pulmonologist. Mm-hmm. And then uh, that started them trying to figure out what was going on. Everyone was trying to figure out what was going on. They didn't really know. Um, the pulmonologist uh, ordered a pulmonary function test, six-minute walk, CT scan, uh, which only confirmed what I had. And all that happened in the end of May and into June. And um, I went for the pulmonary function test. Uh, my saturation numbers dropped into the 70s for the six-minute walk. Oh, wow. They, they immediately wanted to send me to the emergency room. Uh, being that I was still in denial and didn't really feel sick, um, I refused to go, which uh, I'm not the first person to, to not... I didn't feel like I needed that level of care. Right. To go to the emergency room. Uh, but the next day, my pulmonologist got, my, got a prescription for oxygen and I got oxygen delivered, and uh, I got put on oxygen, and then the pulmonologist wanted to do a bronchectomy. Mm-hmm. So a couple weeks later, the very end of June, I had the bronchectomy, and I reacted to it poorly, and I ended up uh, in the emergency room uh, the 2nd of July, but in the very beginning of July, uh, with uh, I was hypoxic. I could not mm-hmm. keep my saturation numbers above 80. And uh, once again, uh, I was in denial about it. I didn't want to go to the emergency room. And uh, my wife said, you need to go. You look terrible. And I said, I don't feel like I need that. Well, you just don't think something so terrible is brewing, you know? Well, I've never been sick. Right. I've never. That was and, me and too. I, yeah, I didn't have a, a family history of uh, of people with long drawn out illnesses. Uh, my my dad's mother died of cancer. My dad's father had a massive heart attack. Uh, my dad's grandparents they both lived to be almost a hundred, uh, and that was back when people didn't live to be a hundred all the time. Right. So, so not having any direct. Experience family experience and no history of this uh, I still but then uh, I, I looked at myself in the mirror and that's when I realized that I I needed to go to the emergency room in July and I ended up spending the first two days in ICU and then four days in progressive care and I went from two liters before the bronchectomy when I got released from the hospital to four liters uh, 24-7. Wow. I basically went from being a full-time bread driver, uh, just a normal 
truck driving, bread delivering Joe, uh, to almost completely disabled, like within two weeks. Oh my uh, gosh. Which was quite a shock um, and hard to accept. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I mean, I completely understand. Um, you know, it's, a, it's very similar to NSIP, non specific interstitial pneumonia, because you know as you said this came out of nowhere you've been perfectly healthy all your life and then you go to the emergency room and then you have all these scars on your lungs and you can't breathe so it's 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 very odd um and as you said you know um you know your symptoms in the beginning were just a dry hacking cough and you know kind of just burdens of breath with exertion right so now that you've been diagnosed, um, how do you manage your symptoms? Well, uh, I mean, I'm on oxygen therapy, so uh, the timeline goes to then the end of October, the beginning of November, I had a flare-up uh, where once again I went hypoxic and I couldn't keep my saturation levels above 80, and uh, we had two five liter oxygen concentrators and I had the tubing to daisy chain those together and no matter what me and my wife did we couldn't get my my saturation to go up so I went back to the hospital yeah. in November and spent six more days but I didn't go to the ICU just all in progressive care and they gave me what the doctor said was A-bomb levels of uh, of uh, steroids so I was on intravenous steroids for three or four days in the hospital and that got the flare up under control but when I left the hospital after those six days my oxygen needs doubled and I went from a 4 liter prescription to 11 liter prescription wow. so goodness. now since then uh, I got real lucky with my doctors um my original primary care provider uh, referred me to a doctor that didn't get very good reviews online. And uh, my wife found the doctor we're going to, the pulmonologist, just randomly because his office is right down the street from our house. Mm -hmm. And he ended up, he went to medical school with a guy that works at the University Hospital of Cincinnati that he's an ILD specialist. And then he also had a contact with someone up at Wexner Medical Center where they do lung transplants. So I got really lucky with finding that pulmonologist. And then this is, so my first, first piece of advice for people is don't ignore the symptoms. As soon as you start to notice that something seems like it's wrong, it probably is. Yes. And natural for all of us to be in denial about it. But, uh, I don't know if it would have made a difference if I'd gone to the doctor earlier, but it may have. Yes. And then the second piece of advice was with the doctors. If if something turns you off about one of the doctors, go find a different one. It, absolutely, yes. Don't yeah, just so. stop, you know, looking, you know, because you 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 have to take care of yourself. You know, you're your you're your number one advocate. So definitely. Yeah. And so we got lucky with the doctors uh, and the connections that the doctors had 
Um, so then that brings me to where we're at right now, and that's I'm being evaluated up at Wexner Medical Center at Ohio State uh, for a double lung transplant. That's what I was going to ask. Uh, I know you had mentioned to me that you're, uh, you know, we're being evaluated. You are being evaluated for lung transplant, which is awesome, and I'm super excited for you. So, will you share with us how that process is going right now? Well, uh, the first thing you have to do is decide whether you're going to commit to it or not. And uh, before the November hospitalization, my wife and I were on the fence a little bit because I didn't feel like I was that sick. It wasn't until after I was hospitalized in November that we decided to commit to the lung transplant because of how sick I was Mm -hmm. after least from that hospitalization. So, uh, I mean, it's just been a lot of testing. I've had to go up to Columbus a couple times, uh, and they're just looking for anything that would would rule you out as a candidate for the procedure. Right. And or I've been lucky that I haven't had anything uh, that would rule me out. And, and the, you know, the first round of tests is, I think they took like 22 or 24 vials of blood. Mm-hmm. And for anything with your other organs, they're looking for any cancers, uh, anything that would rule you out uh, as, a, as a candidate. And, of course, they're looking for success as much as I am. Right. And they, they want to choose someone who's going to survive. So so after that second hospitalization, we kind of committed. And then after the Christmas holidays, uh, we started going through the testing. And uh, so far, I've, I've, I've passed all the testing. That's wonderful. I'm so happy for you because, um, you know, a lung transplant, I mean, that's, that's that's something that is you know that's going to be life-changing for you so I, I I think you know I'm so super excited and happy for you that you are going to be blessed with this gift yeah and that's that's what we call it is the gift that was one of the things that was hard to get our heads around was was that someone has to give that gift but uh the transplant doctor said that person was going to move on whether they decided to be an organ donor or not. Right. So you kind of have to let that go. And I, since I was got my first driver's license, I've been an organ donor. Mm-hmm. And so, as, so we, our feeling is that if we can't use it, then someone else, if they need it, they can have it. So. That's but, amazing. Uh, that, I mean... I, I just think you're I, you're amazing for that for this. Well, well, now that that we've decided to do that, we're doing you know. And then here's another piece of advice: is is don't believe what you Google about your disease. Oh, absolutely no. And and the first thing is that all of our paths are are going to be different, similar but different uh, with this disease. I haven't really found anyone who's exactly the same as anyone else. No. And and you I'm, won't, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah, so I think uh, finding those message boards, finding those Facebook pages, and actually being able to... I've developed a few different relationships with, with people online. Uh, 
asking questions and uh, communicating texts, and that's been invaluable. Uh, so and anyone who is first diagnosed with this, I, I, I say, you know, find one of the Facebook pages and try to connect with some people who have similar experiences to you. Right. So, and I have to be honest, Erica, the thought of the lung transplant is absolutely terrifying to me. Um, it's a, a massive surgery, uh, but Wexner has, they have a 90% success rate of, of patients living a year or longer. And when you look on the Facebook pages, people who've had the lung transplant, who have survived, almost without exception, they say, uh, I would do it again. Yeah. So that gives me hope. Yes. And, and inspiration. And so, you have to think too, like you said in the, uh, just a minute ago, everybody's different. So you can't go off of, you know, how long this person survived or this person survived because everyone's different. I mean, you, I've heard of people surviving 10, 20 years with a, a lung transplant. So, you know, it's... Um, the you, record now is 30. So there's someone who just celebrated 30 years and that was 30 years ago that they got this operation. See, that's awesome. Uh, and the technology and the knowledge has only accumulated since that time. So, and that definitely gives gives me hope. Yes. Uh, but we were we were talking about how how I manage my symptoms earlier, and uh, mm -hmm. so I mean that that's been one of the most difficult parts of this is how quickly my condition has deteriorated. Um, I mean, I very quickly went from being able to go out with an oxygen tank and being able to help with shopping or driving around and doing errands to now where I'm at right now, uh, being on 10 liters, nine liters of oxygen all the time. And what uh, about the different medications that you're probably you know, that you're on now because of this disease? How did they make you feel? Well, I, I got lucky because um, I'm on Celsept and prednisone uh, are the two main medicines that I'm on for, for what I'm doing right now. Mm -hmm. And we're tapering the prednisone because my dose started at 60 milligrams when I left the hospital in November and now we're, we cut that in half. But for the transplant, they want you to be even lower than that. But the Celsept I've been taking for about six months, and it takes a long time to build up. Yes, in your system. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But I, I've been lucky that I haven't had a whole lot of side effects. Good. Medicines that, that's really uh, good. So, I mean, I, and that's just luck, I guess. Uh I know there's, I've seen people post that they've had terrible side effects from, I know the prednisone, I did gain a little weight, mm -hmm. but I haven't lose it back, uh, caused a lot of them, made me much more emotional than I've, I've been in the past. Uh, my wife says I'm a big marshmallow now, so <laughs> if there's something that makes you teary-eyed on a movie, uh, I'll be in my chair crying, so, oh. so I did notice. I did notice that, but that's, all those are manageable side effects. Yes. I'm still able to take the medicine. And as far as managing uh, how, how 
taking the medications. That's where my caregiver, my wife Linda, comes in. She manages all the medications for me. So that's a huge part that I don't, I just have to take them. So no. finding a caregiver is, is huge if you don't have a wife or a husband. Yes, it is. And, you know, um, you're going to need a support system when you're yeah. going through something like this. So yeah. I'm glad that you have Miss Linda to to help you um, have Linda, and be there for you. Yep, I have Linda and I have a brother who lives close by. My oldest son lives right down the street. Uh, my wife has two siblings. So I have more than just Linda, but uh, making sure you develop that caregiver or just help. Yes. And even if it's a, a friend or I haven't had to reach out to any strangers, but there's even strangers that are willing to help you. Yes. If you put your feelers out there on some of the uh, websites, like the neighborhood website, uh, there are people who are willing to help you if you'll reach out to them. Yes. So I think that's important. It is. It's very important. What challenges have you faced, not only physically, but mentally also since you were diagnosed? Well, the physical challenges is just, I'm to the point now where any activity makes me short of breath and desaturate. Uh, even just getting up and, and walking, getting up out of the chair, uh, using the restroom. Um, I do go to pulmonary rehab and uh, that's continued to be a challenge because uh, they want you to be as strong as you can right. for the trick. But then I'll go to pulmonary rehab and that'll wipe me out. So that's one of the biggest challenges is that as this progresses with me, because my case is so aggressive, uh, I'm finding that there's less and less that I can do which then we go to the mental part of then that makes me feel like I'm I'm somewhat of a burden to the people that are caring for me uh, because I can't I can't really do much to help but you so know I, you're I, not a burden because they love you and they want to care for you right but it still doesn't it still doesn't not make me feel that way sometimes especially for people who have never been sick before yeah I understand that. I've felt that way before, so I can completely understand, but I finally had to, you know, tell myself and, and understand what my family and friends were saying that I'm not a burden because they love me and they wouldn't offer, the, you know, to help me if they didn't want to be there for me, you know? But, but that's, that's part of the managing the mental part of this disease and just the mental part of anyone who, who gets sick. Yes. Be it disease or any disease or cancer or whatever it is. So that does, it's something that you have to think about. But uh, How has your family adjusted to you having your disease? Have they had to make any adjustments? And I ask this question too um, to everyone that I talk to because um, I did a segment um, where I talked about how not only... You know, you may have this disease, but your loved ones are right there beside you, you know, 
dealing with the disease as well from their standpoint because you know they're right there with you so have right. has your family what adjustments have they had to make since you've had this disease how are they adjusting well obviously linda has we've switched roles where i was the breadwinner and i took care of a lot of things with the house and scheduling stuff and now we've kind of switched roles where now I'm the one she takes care of all the time so that's been difficult uh, but we're getting through it and then my the rest of my family when I first was diagnosed I was a little bit worried uh, have a pretty close family but uh, my son's are in their early 20s and I, I don't think it's unnatural for them to get detached a little bit from their parents at that age mm-hmm. but my I, I didn't think they were going to step up the way they stepped up uh, just to, to offer help anything that we need uh, kind of tightened our relationship uh, more than I, than I than I anticipated and then even my brother uh, has been, you know, what 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 do you need? What can I do for you? How can I help? And then I have some some extended friends, and uh, just the the people stepping up to say, you know, what can I do to help? Uh, someone I don't even know that well. We put a sign in our yard that said, "We believe in miracles," and he saw it and he just stopped to see how I was doing. And he's a landscaper. And he said, you know, uh, I want to do something for you. And I said, you know, I don't know what you could do for me. And he said, I'll tell you what I'm going to do for you. I'm going to cut your grass this summer. And I'm not going to charge you a nickel. So, that kind of stuff, uh, it strengthens your feeling that there's still good people out there. There is. There's a lot of good people still out there who care. Yeah. So that was pretty cool and he's not he's not someone I was a great friend with but we know each other and that's so he said don't I don't, I don't that's something you don't have to worry about this summer and take care of your take care of getting a transplant and getting back healthy again that's wonderful so, that is yeah. wonderful but the 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 family is obviously concerned uh, my parents are still alive they're in their 80s and they're very distressed that I'm sick uh, so it, it's an adjustment for everybody oh yeah for, for sure what do you think is the most important for our listeners that are battling the same disease or similar disease to know uh, just those pieces of advice and uh, don't hesitate to reach out and, and develop a, a support network um, even if it's strangers, like I said. Uh, and I like and, what you said earlier about don't ignore your body. Don't ignore when you, if you have some, you know, things going on with yourself, go to the doctor, you know? Yeah. And, and a lot of people, I'm not the only one who didn't do that. I've read a couple stories of people who ended up getting the lung transplant who, when they first had the symptoms, they... They ignored them for as long as they could. Uh, and then I, the one guy was in England, and he ended up 
in the hospital for three months before he got his transplant because his condition deteriorated. He had neglected to go look and go ask the doctor what's going on with me because no one wants to be sick. No, no. And if you and if you've never been sick, you that's in the back of your mind that maybe I'm really sick, but in the front of your mind. I know in my personal case, I was like, this is, you know, I'm going to get an antibiotic. It's going to be nothing. I, I did not anticipate or was I prepared to uh, to be disabled. Right. Do so, you- I mean, that's another piece of advice that uh, the sooner you go to your doctor and get diagnosed, uh, the sooner you can apply for certain kinds of benefits. Yes. And because of denial about it, I put off applying for those benefits. And so now I wish I had applied for them earlier. So there's a lot of different reasons uh, for your for your own support functions for why you should go to the doctor. Yes. As soon as you think there's something wrong. Absolutely. So the most important piece of advice so do you have anything else you want to share or add to today's segment uh i I don't think so but you know people do have to just realize that when you start to feel sick uh don't be afraid to go to the doctor and i think that's a lot of people feel that way is they're afraid to go because they don't want to find out that they're sick and when i the, yeah, when I first went to the doctor to the emergency room in July, I mean, I looked horrible. Uh, my lips were turning blue. I was gray. Uh, I was highly hypoxic with my oxygen saturation. Mm-hmm. But I still wanted to ignore it, even though it was right in front of my face. So, don't be afraid to go to the doctor because they, the sooner they catch whatever's going on the more likely they are to come up with a, a, a good strategy for you absolutely well mark okay. uh, go ahead i'm sorry no that's fine no i was gonna say you know again i appreciate you so much for coming on here today with me and allowing me to interview you uh, no problem i i would i like to share this stuff i try to uh to reach out to people online and like I said, I have developed some good relationships with some people who've had transplants and some people who are waiting and some people who have similar experiences to mine. So all that stuff helps. Uh, being positive is, is sometimes difficult, but uh, when you can reach out and talk to someone and share stuff with your family, that is huge. So... Well, I just think it, it, it was wonderful talking with you today and connecting with you. And I know that this interview really educated and helped a lot of listeners out there. And remember, um, if you out there, if any of you listeners out there have any questions or comments, please email me at the silent battle 2022 at gmail.com. Again, that's the silent battle 2022 at gmail.com and always remember life is tough but so are you everyone have a great rest of the day
Erica, thank you so much for having me on your podcast. I hope that some people got some good stuff from this. And uh, I look forward to talking to you again sometime. You are so welcome. You did a great job, Mark. I cannot wait um, for all of our listeners out there to hear it. You have a great day. Okay, you too, Erica. Thank you. Uh Uh-huh.